0: i on a
1: Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and we'll begin with a prayer. Lord, we love you and seek you. We need you and uh, inspire us and uh, lead us, strengthen us, forgive us, move us, help us to understand the eternal view and to uh, put our, place our hearts and our minds upon you and your will And be with us tonight as we talk about these different matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We are announcing a play. Now, I know many of you watch from different places in the uh, U.S. and and the world, so this won't apply to you. But if you know somebody in the Utah, Salt Lake area who's interested in theater, uh, campus, Heart of the Matter, we're going to be producing a play. We're going to have a meeting on April 3rd, and we're going to have a graphic for you next week on this. You have the information. But uh, we're just putting together a team of people and uh, already had just a couple people involved, reading the script, et cetera. But we're gonna try to develop a thing and put on a play in the fall. So if you know actors or people like that are interested, uh, love to Well, just put that in your head. We got a unique email from Stephanie S. It is titled, God Doesn't Care. It says, Dear Sean, I've watched your show uh, since leaving the LDS Church a year and a half ago. I have appreciated and embraced preterism, but I've lost my faith because the one question I need answered, no one seems to have an answer. Question, why has God let terrible things happen? For example, the Holocaust, I can't imagine a loving God allowing such atrocities to take place. Why weren't their prayers answered? Why have all my prayers been unanswered? How can I put my faith in a God that doesn't seem to care? The question haunts me and I now feel more lost even than when I left the LDS church. So we're gonna go to the whiteboard. And you know, we've had this question come up and we add all kinds of hypothecations and all kinds of ideas about it. And I just wanna try to summarize how I see why on the board. And let's just put it like this, God and suffering. And I think that when it comes to God and suffering, there are several things that lead to why suffering is allowed on his watch. You might think of several others to add to this, but maybe this will give you, uh, Stephanie, some, uh, some ideas. First of all, you say you can't understand or believe in a God who would allow bad things to happen. I can't believe in a God who wouldn't allow bad things to happen. Uh, Why? Because God is good. And what that means is he uh, is not despotic. He does not force his way upon people. And he's not a puppeteer. He's, He's not taking us and forcing us to do things His way. And if if God is that loving and giving, then things are gonna go wrong, and suffering is going to occur. If He was not a good God, He would meddle and interfere with every single choice, every single event, every single outcome, ad nauseum, so that we lived in this perfect world which really wouldn't be perfect. It would just be perfect because he's constantly making it such. So the first thing I would suggest is God is good and he's not a meddler. And being good, I would suggest that secondly, God does not force, but he allows for free will. And allowing for free will, he allows all of us to act. Do we have proof of this? We do in the Garden of Eden. When he says, look, I've got a tree, don't eat of it. The day you do, you're going to die. But he gave them the choice. He didn't force them to. He didn't stop them from. He allowed them to introduce death into their own lives. Would a good God allow somebody, a human that they created out of love, to commit suicide? He would. He would because he believes in freedom. That is paramount. And if he doesn't believe in freedom, then he's a despot. Right? And so there's another thing. He doesn't stop us. He doesn't fix all the results of our actions. He allows them to go on. Third, I think that God has the long view in mind. And when I say that, I think that we have a human view in mind. We have, hey, I was born on this date, and I've been living for 70 years, and these things have happened. Where has God been? But God isn't looking at this little tiny uh, phase of one person's human life, or even the, the, the nation of Israel over the course of 1500 years. He is looking at the eternal view. And with that in mind, he is orchestrating and allowing these things to go on. And we might say he's a terrible God for allowing the Holocaust to occur. But in the long view, it could be so much good ends up happening from him allowing it, we don't understand it. So is it possible there's things we don't see that God does? So so this starts to introduce some humility and some thinking that maybe God knows more than we do. I mean, if he is God and he is governing the universe, I would think he has insights to things that we don't. And his view, according to Jeremiah, is to bring about an expected end. He says, my thoughts toward you are not evil, but good to bring about an expected end. So in his long view, he is constantly looking forward to bring about good things, not bad. Along the way, does he allow suffering to occur? Sure, just like a parent would allow a kid to take a hammer who's never hammered before and try to teach him, but finally let him whack and break his thumb and cause great deal of pain, knowing that in the end, the kid would become a good carpenter but there's pain along the way. All these things we just grab at trying to make some sense. Could it be then that we have a limited understanding? And this plays into all of it, that if we can say in the, in the realm of God and suffering that we as humans have a limited understanding, that bodes to faith. And instead of cynicism and anger at God, it says, I'm going to let you do your will, it is painful, but you're going to do it anyway and I'm going to take the position that you know what you're doing and I don't. Um, you know, it's kind of like the Willy Wonka movie, if you've seen it, where he puts Charlie through a bunch of things, he lets it, but he knows what he's looking for. And we think, oh, we know what's going on, but he knows what he's doing, he has a purpose in mind. And in the end, everybody gets their chocolate and Charlie inherits the the factory, et cetera, et cetera. But along the way, there's some scary things. All right. Finally, or not finally, the fifth one is that God has operated through types and shadows. And what I mean by that is that in the Old Testament, we have pictures presented through actual occurrences that tell us a story for all human beings. Let me give you an example. When God allowed the nation of Israel that uh, uh, proffered and grew when Jacob came to Egypt to meet with Joseph, his son, and they grew, and it says in Scripture, and this, the next Pharaoh did not know Joseph, meaning that this connection between Joseph and Egypt was lost. And so the Egyptians put the Jews into 400 years of bondage. That's a heck of a long time. And, and God allowed that until he brings Moses about to be a deliverer for them and to bring them out and to bring them into the promised land. Well, all of that are pictures and types. And, and so we could say, look at what he allowed Israel to do. Sit in uh, uh, bondage for 400 years. That's, what a horrible God. When in reality, it is all playing out to this long view and he's provided us a literary text to show these are pictures and types that he's working with, which I don't want to say they tie his hands, but they, they have him working in ways that we're not going to get. Finally, bottom line, uh, his ways are higher than our ways. We cannot understand what is going on and that sounds like a cop-out. But really think about it. We don't have the long, we have a very limited understanding of things, a very limited intelligence, limited scope, limited ability to see what's going on. And so the bottom line is, um, he knows, final point. So I'll just put, he knows. And then the final point is this. And this is something that leads right to this. He knows who care, Okay. And he's out to get everybody, every knee to bow, every tongue to confess. But he knows who care about who cares about him, and he knows who doesn't. And so what he is doing is is in bringing all this in. It seems like it's allowing a great deal of suffering, and for us, it does seem like suffering. But I have a I have a great suspicion we will look back on this and see that most of it was. Uh, or all of it was for our benefit. I hope that helps you and I hope you don't believe that God doesn't care because I am convinced that he cares uh, far more than we can imagine and we need to try to put that behind us. And with that, how about a moment from the Word?
2: And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse
1: all right i shared this with our milk group at campus and there's a few people here who were there so you guys can sleep during this but uh it's such an important fresh view that i came across and i think it's very important this ministry has always maintained that the new testament is a compilation of directives and uh, that the apostles were giving to the converts of that day and age and uh, that we can allow ourselves to take the Bible, the New Testament, and, and take everything it says and apply it in a material sense today. I do not believe that is possible or, or um, recommended. Tonight, I want to present to you some words of Paul which prove my stance and this stance that we've maintained better than I've ever encountered. Ever. And it's right there in, in, under our noses. Came across it just two weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is speaking to believers in his day, and he says, Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondary prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps governments, diversity of tongues. Now listen to what he says. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts, ready? And yet, he says, listen, he says, and yet, after saying all that, Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. He's just listed a bunch of positions and calls and titles and things that have been in the church. And he says, and yet, I'm going to show you a better way, a more excellent way. And guess what comes immediately thereafter? First, what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the chapter on Christian love. And so Paul has described all the parts of the body of Christ, which we are, and he has delivered important points relative to us as members of it. He gives an order of different body parts that are thriving and operating in that day. Remember, they're coming out of Judaism, and he says, God has given prophets and apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, for the first apostles, secondary governments, diversity of tongues. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, do all have healing? He says, earnestly covet. That's zilu. That means you can do it badly or you can do it warmly. Obviously, this means warmly. Earnestly covet the best gifts. He goes, but yet, however, you guys, listen, I show you a more excellent way. A more excellent way than apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healings, gifts, governments, diversity of tongues. What could that way be? Since the Bible is not written in chapter and verse, it's just one big narrative. First Corinthians is just an epistle, it's a letter. We know that there is no break here when he says, "I'll show you a more excellent way." He immediately goes into the chapter, he immediately goes into the contents of chapter 13 on agape love. It's the more excellent way hey, we have the prophets and apostles and all this, but let me show you a more excellent way, a more excellent way, agape love. We have historically taken these roles that Paul mentions here, apostles, prophets, which were necessary for the governance of the body. At that time, this church where Jews and Greeks were fighting with each other over the care of widows and there was culture clashes and there was the dying of the law and the replacement of the spirit. And he tells them, God's put the church together with a whole bunch of roles and offices to inspire and handle this thing. But he did not say these things were the most important end all for the body. He didn't say it's the most excellent way that God has created this church. He says, in fact, go to uh, Ephesians 4, begin at verse 11. Here he reiterates the point. Here he says, And he, God, gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until, until we all come to a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, By the slight of man and cunning craftiness, craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. He goes, but speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. And then he says, starts talking about the whole body fitted jointly together. He says, every part makes increase of the body unto, and he ends it with, edifying of itself in love. Edifying of itself in love. That's the same end as he gives us in 1 Corinthians. The end, the better way, the more excellent way, is we wind up edifying ourselves in love. And, it, and, it, and he, right there in that passage shows, forget all, you want the better way to operate, get rid of all the callings and, and orders and rules and things. I strongly suggest that that's the case. So, instead of relying and looking to present day apostles or prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors, teachers, as being the ultimate form of doing church and living in the body together. He says, let me give you a more excellent way. And then he says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. He's talked about speaking with tongues earlier. He says, God has given us gifts and tongues and, and apostles and prophets. He goes, but though I speak with tongues, he goes, and I don't have love, I'm, I'm a sounding brass. And though I have the gift of prophecy, he talked about having prophets and apostles, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith and could not move, uh, that I could move mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. And then he describes what this love actually looks like, Right? I ardently propose, ardently, that true believers can, will, possibly are, I know they have in the past, come to a unity of the faith. True believers come to a unity of the faith, and they work with each other in love. Immature believers are going back to the order, and the prophets, the apostles, the pastors, the teachers, the teachings, the tongues, the, all these things, until they can come to a unity of the faith. But absolute maturity in Christ are when true believers come and they allow love to reign over them because it just replaces the need for all of that stuff. And I'm convinced that with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the priesthood and the law and the nation of Israel and all the things of that former economia, that God has opened the way for true love by His Spirit. We, when we go back, it's, we've gone backward in the faith when we start building up these, these systems that God has given them in the early church to have, instead of just living by love and not, be, not letting every wind of doctrine push us apart and drive us around. This day of which I speak was described in the Old Testament. You remember, I've talked about it before. This is where in Hebrews 8.10, he quotes the Old Testament where God says, this covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, the days of material religion, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they will be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You notice he says, Not teach. That means not teachers. I'm a teacher. And yet he's saying we don't even need that. He is literally saying we don't even need teachers there in that day, because God will write his laws upon our minds and our hearts. So all we have to do then is just love. Don't believe me? The apostle John touches on the same day, and he says in 1 John 2:27. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you. He is talking about the place when we leave all those positions behind, playing church, getting together, making sure we're trying to echo what's written in the New Testament of the apostolic church. And he says, listen, you don't need that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, and has been taught, it abides in you. He says, you don't need it. We have the spirit, we have the Bible, we read it. The term didaskalos there is for teacher, and and that's where we get didactic. That's where we get someone saying, this is how it is. That's where we get didactic. That's a didactic statement. This is what you need to believe. And, and, And we have no need for that. And so am I talking myself out of a job? Absolutely. Really. We get up to try to learn the Bible, but in terms of you must do this and that, if there's love, we don't need it. We don't need it as proven by Baal. We have the spirit and we have the better way. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, this is radical and we'll wrap it up with this. Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ as a foundation, leaving them where they belong, let us go on to perfection. Okay. That perfection is found in love leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Don't stand up and uh, and with a didaskalos, didactically tell people about repentance. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of doctrines of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection from the dead and of eternal judgment. If we will do this, we will do, he says, if God will permit. So we pray that God will allow all of us in the churches to just replace the didaskalos with love, worshiping Jesus, praising God, seeking how to help one another, hearing the word, worshiping him. But we don't need to didactically come down on people. It's proven by Paul saying, I will show you a better way. And in the presence of that better way, he describes what it looks like. He says this better way is long-suffering, it's kind, doesn't envy, it's not self-promoting, it's not arrogant, it behaves, it's not easily provoked, doesn't think evil of each other, doesn't rejoice in evil, it's a love that has joy in the truth, it's a love, look at how he says it, bears all things. It's a love that believes all things, believes all things are possible, all things could be. God could reconcile everybody. It's possible that maybe everybody won't burn forever in hell. All these things, it believes all things. This is that love he's talking about. It hopes all things. It endures all things, and it's a love that never fails. This is the more excellent way. The other ways will bring division. And as proven by the early church, they will bring division. But, and God has provided them, they're good, but there's a better way, Paul says. And I hope that uh, we might start to look at it. All right. Last week we talked about the LDS and Christian ideas relative to the term only begotten. Tonight we're going to continue to talk about Jesus, but not as the only begotten, but as the firstborn, a topic which often places the LDS people at odds with Christians because of the divert, div, different way that they see Jesus as the firstborn, okay? It's close to the only begotten, but it's not the same. To a Latter-day Saint, Jesus is the firstborn spirit to whom all other spirits are his junior. He's the firstborn of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother spiritually, of whom all the rest of everybody of humanity and I guess demons, too, devils, are lesser than him. In other words, the LDS Jesus is admittedly the firstborn of all spirits, but since all human beings and demons are created spirits of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother in a pre-mortal existence, Jesus winds up being our elder spirit brother. Okay, And this is the thing that rocks the minds of Christians when they hear about Mormonism. What do you mean Jesus is our elder brother? It is absolutely, he is absolutely viewed in this sense. Brigham Young said, as Charles Harrell quotes, other humans are his junior, quote. Brigham Young said to Jesus, other humans are his junior, meaning first first, uh, born of the Spirit and we are second, third, fourth. In the LDS Journal of Discourses, 18290, Orson Pratt said, quote, How long since the Savior's birth took place is not revealed. It might have been unnumbered millions of years for aught we know. But we do know that he was born and was the oldest of the family of spirits, end quote. Okay, absolute doctrine of Mormonism. The first documented public reference of spirit birth uh, also includes a reference to Christ as our elder brother. There, in Orson Pratt's Prophetic Almanac of 1845, he wrote, what is man? And then he answers, the offspring of God. He asks, what is God? The father of man. Who is Jesus Christ? He is our brother, end quote. Uh, Brigham Young, six months after Joseph Smith's dead, said publicly, Christ is our head and elder brother, end quote. That's in uh, the Nauvoo Journal, page 178. So this stance... Echoing language that comes with uh, it—that Jesus was the firstborn Spirit and He's our elder brother—has rolled forth and is normative in the minds of LDS people who haven't, who just regurgitate what they've been taught. That's, I mean, at a a fast and testimony meeting on a Sunday, you hear him thankful for uh, Jesus, my elder brother. He's always placed there. So, to commonality. Both the LDS and biblical Christians see Jesus as the firstborn, but this is where the commonality stops. And to be honest, what the LDS bring to the table on the topic has produced some of the most horrible results, in my estimation, in Mormonism and people who follow Mormonism. Uh, One of the biggest black lines between the way biblical Christians see Jesus as the firstborn and the way the LDS see him is this unique idea that there was a spiritual pre-mortal existence of every human creation or angelic creation, to be honest. And uh, in other words, the LDS teach that all of us were spirit children from heavenly father and heavenly mother or mothers before coming to this earth, Jesus included. He was just the firstborn or elder brother to all of us. The Bible clearly suggests a reverse order. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Listen, howbeit that was not first which is spiritual. That is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural is first, and afterward that which is spiritual. In other words, Paul says that the earthly order of things is not spiritual first, not a premortal existence first, but natural first, out of the dust of the ground for earthlings, okay? And then spiritual by and through Christ Jesus through rebirth. So to a Christian, this is the order of all earth creations, humans. Mormonism teaches the opposite. It says, contrary to Paul, that everything is first spiritual and then natural. Uh, Jesus, when he was speaking of himself to the Pharisees, you remember this, he said, you are from beneath. Clear, you are from beneath. Was he just talking to Pharisees only or from beneath? No, he's talking to all human beings. He's talking to anybody who's born of a woman. You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. There is a clear distinction there between Christ and the rest of humanity. Um, in John 3:31, John the Baptist announces Jesus and he says, he that comes from above is above all. That's a singular statement. He that cometh from above is above all. If he's talking about all spiritual creations like the LDS teach, then who is the he that comes from above but everybody? So we're all above all? No. He's talking about Christ. He that comes from above is above all. And that separation is so vitally important. He goes on and says, He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. He, not they that cometh, he that cometh from heaven. Is there, if there can be earthly beings from the dust and there's a singular Heavenly creature being that came from above, we know that it is always talking about Christ. In John 6, 33, Jesus said, for the bread of God is he, again singular, which cometh down from heaven, okay? And giveth life into the world. Now people could say, well, there's only one bread of life that came down and you could argue that one, but the other instances prove that Mormonism uh, stance is really off. Does it matter? Uh, I think it matters a great deal. If a person believes that Jesus was only being to live on earth that came from a premortal existence with God, the Father, and that person accepts that the rest of humanity originated from the dust, and then the personal view they would have of Jesus would be woe, not hey, brother, it's woe. You are God with us. And it's not this familial, uh, familiar kind of, hey, elder brother, help me out here. And it is... Um, the first view causes us to look at Jesus with awe and worship and devotion. The second view can cause people to see us as related to him and therefore more entitled to access to the Father since we're all brothers and sisters before coming here. The first view would give deep gratitude for God so loving the world that he sent his only begotten son to save us, where the second view might cause some to wonder, how come I wasn't sent? How come I wasn't the first created spirit child of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother? I wonder what my position was to elder brother was. Was I fifth in line, 500th, 5 billionth? How come I'm so far down the line? Things like that comes in when you create a, an idea like that. The first would have a humble allegiance to Christ. Humble allegiance to Christ. The second would see him as, you know, doing a really good job for us. Buddy, thank you. But it was a job that was assigned to you nonetheless. I have my job. You have yours. And so do you see what I'm trying to say? And I say it because for decades I have encountered de- numbers, of devout LDS people who have absolutely no heartfelt connection to Christ. I'm not picking on them. I'm just stating it matter-of-factly. There is no heartfelt connection. It's a a, a result of teachings like this. Uh, There appears to be a gap in the mind and the heart with the LDS. Intellectually, they can say all kinds of things about them, but it hasn't really sunk in with many of them. And this can exist in a lot of religious people where there's a disconnect between the two. But the LDS have a real difficulty as a whole. If a person believes Jesus was just a man, they're gonna face a certain number of obstacles to really seeing him for who he was, which is life eternal to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's life eternal to know them. And if you just think he was just a man, I'm not saying the LDS do, but if that's what you say, well, you know, you're gonna have some obstacles to really seeing him for who he was. If you believe he's your elder spiritual brother, you're gonna face other obstacles that will hinder you from coming to know who he really is. Admittedly, when we look at the various ways Christians even see Christ, there can be complications, and we have divisions, and we have difficulty on how each of us actually see him, but most, if not all, biblical Christians know that Jesus is God with us. They know that he was fully incarnate, fully man, fully God, that, they, that he's the only one to have come from above. And all of these removed obstacles allow converted Christians to see him more clearly and then relate to him from the heart more clearly. But when, we, when the LDS have allowed these things to come in and trip them up, uh, it's really unfortunate. And I don't think, uh, look, I don't think Mormonism has to agree with Christian, evangelical Christianity on many things. I never have. Uh, Bishop Earl refers to a show that we did in 2009 where we say, are they Christian? and we talked about just a bunch of stuff the LDS, i said, let the lds have it you know i even think i said temples go ahead you want to go and try to live up to that i was just talking to larry about this you want to try to live up to this one if you think you're going to please god without what you have at it you know you're not gonna but if they want to do that it's just like other christians doing some strange things to reach and please god but man i think that that to I don't even care about the works they try to do. If they want to live by works, let them live by works. Many Christians do too. But I hope and pray we can begin to have a dialogue on this point, who Jesus is. This is, I mean, they're scrambling to stay alive, I believe. If they can just admit that he is the only one to have come from above, if if they would just admit that, It would shock all the who are these children coming down songs and pre-mortal existence things. But it would realign Christ really well. And it would start causing Latter-day Saints to say, wow, okay, I appreciate him differently. My suggestion. And um, so maybe we can start dialoguing out on the, the social media where Jesus said, I am from above, you are from beneath and taking that into account. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 590-8413. We're gonna take a look at this spot and we'll come back to emails and Byron from Canada. it in my photo booth so I don't forget it
2: For you
1: Back, let's go to Byron in Canada. Byron, you're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Oh, hi. Uh, good to hear from you. Um, question for you and your viewers regarding baptism of the dead. Yeah. Um, specifically, how it relates to blacks prior to 1978, um, partly because they would have been denied the priesthood, which would have denied them access to the temple and denied them other things, which I don't know all the details of. So the question is, has, um, does anybody know whether LDS members have been doing baptism for the dead for the blacks that were uh, members prior to 1978 who were excluded from the temple?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm almost sure, but I don't have anything to prove it. And I could be wrong, so if someone knows I'm wrong, correct me. Uh, maybe some people in the audience here. But uh, I am pretty sure, because baptism is the... Uh, 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 you could black uh, people could always be members of the church, and you become a member in Mormonism through baptism, and so I'm pretty sure that the vicarious ordinance of baptism for the dead was performed on black people prior to the 1978 revelation. However, it's almost a, uh, it's almost a moot point because. It doesn't, they didn't allow them to do the other vicarious work for the dead, temple ordinances, which gains, which grants people access into the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. So it was like, hey, we'll let you uh, enter into the lower parts of the celestial kingdom through baptism, but you're not coming up to our neighborhood. And uh, that's kind of how it was.
2: Well, that's kind of, I didn't really know, I'm not really a scholar, and I'm not a LDS or ex-LDS, but uh, it just seemed like that would be the place to start, which would be for your own members. If baptism did, for the dead did so much, it would be like, well, do it for the people that were excluded by the church.
1: Yeah. Really good question, though. Thanks so much, Byron.
2: Have a great evening. Thank you.
1: All right. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, this is from Richard R. He says, uh, I'm doing parts one and two on Damnation, referring to the show. God is loved to be sure, but the part I differ with you is that God is powerful enough to usurp human will. The answer I found by way of C.S. Lewis is that the lost are damned because they will not be saved. The focus on self, the insistence that they are right, the eyes touch, shut tight, Fingers in the ears, mouth open, screaming in defiance, signals the truly signifies the truly damned. God would save all, he says, but there are those who will never change their minds, repent, because they recognize no higher power. Uh, at some point, at some time, the will surrenders, the mind dismisses, the heart closes, the decision has been made. Uh, The truth is the salt has lost its savor. And so he's talking about our discussions that we've had on eternal punishment. Uh, And he says, you know, he says the Trinity remains ready to save even in the face of burning defiance. It isn't that he can't do anything about it. It's the damned who would have it no other way. Um, I would, uh, you know, there's probably there's there's possibility you are absolutely right. That the recalcitrant sinner, his heart is closed off and would rather sit in darkness or punishment or burning or whatever it is than accept. But I don't think you're right. Um, I would suggest that by and through God's long suffering and love pouring out endlessly, calling that, um, that the ear plugging nanny goats will bend their knee. Their tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ, and they will be reconciled. Now, maybe I'm Pollyannish, and I just think that, but I I just don't know. uh, I just can't see it any other way. And the reason I I stand on that is because I do believe God won't be trumped by the will of a human being. He's not going to be trumped by the uh, cunning of the devil, and he's not going to be trumped by the will of a brat. And he's going to win. And I believe that he will have victory and God will be all in all, et cetera, et cetera. So Richard, it's good thought, good thinking. Uh, Why not? Evan Seltzer, and he gives us his full name. He gives us a subject in this email, growing up gay in Mormonism. He used a line in this email that caught my attention because it rang so true. He says, I'm sure you get emails from all over the place and... uh, But I feel that my story is taboo in the Mormon culture and should be discussed. I've done baptisms for the dead in the Atlanta temple, passed the sacrament, and dealt with mentally crippling bullying at the hands of my old quorum. I'm going to come back to that line in a second. And after all that pain, I was still denied access to my own sister's uh, temple wedding uh, six years after I left. Yes, I left the church of my own will, but in all honesty, I was shoved out. I didn't believe any of it, but my whole family is still active. I didn't want to be the black swan of the family. He stayed in. Believe me, I understand corruption in the church more than you know. I feel that speaking on the air about experiences I had during the church as a gay man would shed so much light on issues facing the church today and would absolutely love to correspond. So I'll correspond and we'll see if we can have a dialogue somehow. But that line, mentally crippling bullying at the hands of my old quorum. And, and I want to tell you, from first-hand experience of being a bully that it's an us-versus-them mentality in the wards and it's a uh, it can be Uh, in the deacon's quorum and the teachers and the priests those who are not from the most stalwart families those who might have some trouble with gender identity or they might be effeminate uh, often they are brutalized by the ward young men, or the young women's groups, whatever happens, the girls who are kind of slutty, they get brutalized in that system because it's an us versus them mentality. We are the righteous. You are not. We are superior because of our socioeconomic uh, psychographic backgrounds. You come from the trailer. You, and, and I'm not saying it happens in every ward and there can be wards that are loving. But in it, it, where I grew up, it was dog eat dog. And those guys who were obviously not part of the pack were mistreated and his line here, mental crippling bullying at the hands of my old quorum. Uh, I mean, and I can bring some ex-sig presidents who are friends of mine who will attest to it. this goes on. And, and I'm sure it goes on in Christian churches too. The sad thing about it is, is that it's ever done in the name of religion. And we would hope that real Christianity would be like, we are all in the same boat. Nobody is different. Let's love each other and, and, and really have the leaders and everybody else push that. But that wasn't the way it was, at least in my experience growing up. And I hope I'm not offending too many people. Uh, this is somebody who says, it's from Tim. I am late to the game. I have been searching for years for people who feel the way I do. I left the Church of Christ. So this person, that's a thats a, a very strict religion in Christianity, the Church of Christ, founded by Alexander, is it Alexander Campbell? Several years ago, because I was accused of something I did not do. Admittedly, the person that had done the thing was my friend, and I was guilty by association. Since then, I've not been able to find a place where that doesn't feel like they're putting on a Broadway show every Sunday. I have started working nights and needed something to listen to. I started catching up on... Uh, the heart of the matter, uh, and I see that we're cut from the same cloth. My oldest de- daughter is rapidly losing uh, a war against captivity in sexual identity. Since I've not been involved in the church, most Christians she knows are very hypocritical, especially her mother, who only views her religion and is condescending. Of course, teenagers uh, do the same. And he just goes on Do you have any advice what to do? And it's tough. This is, this is in the same thing, same week, different emails, different parts of the nation, sending it in. And in the Church of Christ, he saw ostracization. And in all these religions, shouldn't be that way. We should go to the more excellent way. And that is what Paul said. Off air, uh, but on this uh, screen, Sean, I attended your service as a guest of the Erskins. That's Earl uh, Erskine, Bishop Earl. My dear son Aaron accompanied me, praise God. This is the closest Jesus Christ I've felt in 46 years as an LDS convert. Our family is of Jewish heritage, and my immediate family followed me into the LDS church. My wonderful husband, though LDS, fully supports me in my crisis of faith, leading me to the biblical Jesus Christ. I have felt inauthentic and unfulfilled for many years. I didn't find Jesus in the LDS church, but now feel him in my heart. I pray for spiritual conversion. Bless you. Thank you. Sue B., well, I'm uh, grateful that Sue came and the Erskins brought uh, her to campus and, uh, and her son. And we pray, listen, this is a shameless plug, but it, we invite you to join us at campus wherever you are. You go to www.campuschurch.tv at 10 o'clock Sunday mornings, Mountain Time, and you can join us. And uh, we have a small group that comes. And then at 2.30, we have another smaller group that comes. That's the meet and you can tune in, you can hear the word taught, we sing the word, and we get out of here. That can be your church, until you find one locally that you really like, or if you ever do, uh, you're welcome to join us there. This is, uh, I'm not going to wait on that one. Okay, well, I guess I will, we have time. It's, a, it's not that heavy, but this. listen. Sean, I heard an episode the other day while I was at work, and in it you said that Jesus had to be regenerated. I never thought about this and never put it in terms of my studies, and I got to thinking. If Jesus' resurrection was his regeneration, which I believe it was, then the resurrection of the dead ones in 70 A.D. would be our corporate resurrection. Since, listen, the first century Christians were told that their resurrection would be his resurrection, not their own. He gives us a passage to consider on this, Romans 6, 5, that says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. I'm not sure I uh, agree with that interpretation of that passage, like Josh gives. But he says, notice we are planted into his death and his resurrection. So the idea of our corpses coming out of the ground one day is as ludicrous as saying that each one of us will die for our sins on a crucifix. He's making a good point there, that if we are identified with him in his death, we don't actually suffer the same physical death that he did on a cross, and we are also identified in his resurrection, then it doesn't mean that our corpses are going to come out like his was, because he needed to show himself having risen from the grave, and that fits perfectly with Paul's explanation that resurrection is a from a corruptible mortal material body to an incorruptible spiritual one. So I think he makes a point there. He says, so then they were born again in prolepsis, that means in anticipation by faith and the guarantee of the spirit. And so what he's saying is that salvation, gener- regeneration, atonement, resurrection, fit in the same, they're like different facets of the same diamond. And uh, would I agree with that, and I, and I do agree with that, in a, in a large extent, we're gonna have some differences. And I know that was kind of a perfunctory view of what he said, but I think there's something to that because we are so adamant about, we're gonna rise up from the grave that my grandpa, great grandpa was in 400 years ago, buried in the hill over there. That is not consistent with us dying with him if, I mean, if, if we're going to take resurrection literally, then we need to take being crucified with him literally too, is what his point is. All right? Uh, Ken writes about his daughter being sucked into the Mormon faith. Ken, I'll get to that next week. With uh, five minutes left, before we sign off tonight, I want to note something that I find meaningful. All the talk we've done over the past few years regarding subjective Christianity leads, if you haven't thought of this before, to Christianity in the individual as being more of an art than a science. Now, if you take people groups, people who are scientifically based and people who are artistically based, you have very different ways of approaching things. And so I would suggest in subjective Christianity that the faith is more artistic. It doesn't mean it excludes science, the scientific mindset, but it's a more artistic experience. Uh, I'm not suggesting there aren't linear right and wrongs or objective truths. The Bible provides us with a wonderful set of boundaries for what is uh, within objective truth and what is without objective truth. But I personally see the faith today as much of an artistic experience uh, as an expression of a scientific experience. Um, I mean, in most cases, art is extremely subjective, if you think about it. Art is a, is the artist and the art produced is a very subjective experience. And if we can make the case that Christianity is subjective, then it is certainly more art-like than it would be science-like. When it comes to actual art, many Christians, and I've made this observation, have very little resonation And therefore, Christian art is limited in terms of its breadth and scope and its audience. Generally speaking, art that is accepted in the Christian faith uh, has been relegated to the classics and to traditional representations uh, like the the masters, landscapes that are traditional, uh, uh, Thomas Kincaid's and modern art and modern expressions are almost entirely rejected by Evangelical Christianity. Now why do you suppose this is? I propose a few things. Firstly, institutions and institutional thought with all of their objective demands upon us ardently resist individualistic expression, even down to the art that they will endorse or support. If it's too individualistic, too subjectively interpreted, the institutions will resist it greatly because it threatens them. Why does it threaten them? Because it's allowing freedom of expression where the traditional is more limited and structured and must look like the reality. So look at the Third Reich, for example. I'm sure most of you know that Hitler was a frustrated artist and he possessed some skill in the traditional style of art, but when he tried to get himself into the art movement before he became a political person, Uh, the burgeoning modern art movement was underway and it rejected his old-fashioned style of drawing and painting. And so when he rose to power, it's not surprising that Nazi Germany, they went around and they collected, they stole, and they took from the many Jews and other people their modern art collection. And they called it in Kunst, which means degenerate art. And they took these, they they had these exhibits where they would put up all the degenerate art, all the modern artistic expressions, and then the millions of people came and looked at it to mock it and show how stupid it was. And this was art from Paul Klee and Kirshner and Kandinsky, Mark Chagall, different people like that. Of course, uh, uh, what's his name, the guy with all the cubism? Picasso would have certainly been thrown in there. Anybody who was impressionistic and just out there, they would have been thrown in there and mocked, right? So one of the reasons art was rejected was because it was created by artists who were free spirits and who challenged conformity to the norms of the way to see things, and also because many of them were Jews. But you see, to a regime where order and demands and objective that must be like this, are a must. Modern art and modern artists were anathema, all right? So, it represents too much independence and non-conformity. Coming out of Mormonism, I per- personally witnessed the promotion of the classics of art. Most wards, one time or another, had at least a, a print of an Arnold Freeberg uh, on the wall or a Thomas Kincaid. And, uh, but there was an automatic demotion of modern art by virtue of its total absence from wards and stakes it just wasn't there and me being more of a modern art type i always felt out of place how come i just can't resonate to some of these more classical pictures now, i'm saying they're bad they're great but how come we don't have more of a they won't allow that because it's too free so the more artistic interpretation given to a work of art and the less resemblance it has to reality uh the less acceptance it will, that it will receive in either evangelical Christianity or Mormonism. Uh, so in the simple comparison between traditional classic art and all modern expressions that can't be defined as traditional or classical, we find divergent worlds at odds, right? And all we're seeing really is objectified art uh, fighting against subjectified art. And here's my point relative to Christianity. The power struggle line in art is no different than the power struggle we find in approaches to the Christian faith. Uh, When it comes to people who see their relationship with God and Christ subjectively in the faith and those who want to objectify it and say it must be this way, it's the same argument. So what I understand this clearly, we'll wrap it up, I am not promoting exclusivity to modern subjective Christianity alone. I embrace completely the Christians who have objectified the faith and need to follow it through that form. I respect it. If they want to be that way and they want to follow it that way, I don't think it's the healthiest way or the most liberating way, but if that's what they need to do, have at it, okay? Unfortunately, this liberality is not returned. The classicists, the the traditionalists, will not look at the subjectivists and say, you're okay too. They say, you're wrong. This is modern garbage. This is degenerate faith, you see? So uh, when art lovers are able to love all art, good art, that touches them subjectively, whether it be classical and traditional, Or whether it be representative modern or uh, impressionistic whatever it is when art lovers can get along art is uplifted when christian objectivists and christian subjectivists can get along christ is uplifted that's a long way to say that but that's what we're trying to get to and a subjective christian should never look down their nose at reformed or orthodox presbyterians or mormons or catholics or staunch uh, uh, baptists or whatever, they should say that is how they are going about it. But we hope that the other side will look to those who are much more free and much more subjective in their faith and allow them to exist too. And with that, join us next week here on Heart of the Matter.
0: I'm on a ride, going nowhere. the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light till monkeys start